Grady's Cold Brew is the official coffee of late era, and if you're smart, you'll make it the official coffee of your household, too. We've all been drinking Grady's for years, and we were thrilled when they started as a sponsor for us. This isn't some situation of Stamps.com or whatever forcing a podcast host to talk about how much they love Stamps. We really do drink Grady's, and we really do love it. Grady's is a small business run out of the Bronx, New York, by a very sweet man named Grady, and they deliver their coffee in a variety of formats, whether it's bottled or boxed up or in a brew-it-yourself kit, and it's all delicious. It will get you hopping right out of bed in the morning. As we're rolling into spring, cold brew season is upon us, and hey, maybe you want to put Grady's in a cocktail, throw it on top of a white Russian or something. If you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and enter the code LATEERA20, you'll get 20% off your first order. That is an exclusive deal for Late Era listeners. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com and the code LATEERA20. All right, thank you, Grady, and let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Sophisticated In Crowd is all talking about... They're judging you for not listening to it, talking behind your backs at super spreader events. Mm. You are simply not one of the cool kids if you're not listening to Late Era, but the good news is you can remedy that simply by sticking with us through this episode about Paul McCartney's 17th and 18th, I want to say, solo albums, Egypt Station and McCartney 2. McCartney 3. McCartney 3, thank you. Already off to a great start. (laughs) This is Late Era, the podcast brought to you by Osiris Media, where we talk to you about the strange, beguiling, uh, unintentionally humorous, uh, just sort of plain torturous to listen to albums by late career classic artists. My name's Andy Cush. I am a bass player, a new server and bartender, a contributing editor at Pitchfork. My co-hosts are... I am Winston Cook-Wilson. I uh, am a musician. I make music in in office culture. And as Winston CW, I I just want to quickly say, Andy, that was a a really inspired introduction. And I just really love that you finally address like all the cultural stuff around this podcast that's been going on because we don't normally talk about it so that's cool time to address the hype i think happy to address the hype we love the hype we love our listeners my name is sam sadomsky staff writer pitchfork singer songwriter entrepreneur happy to be here entrepreneur goes up front now yeah i have definitely been doing some prioritizing of what matters in my life now that these restrictions are lifting a little bit and i'm like who am i okay who have i become let's uh, uh wait your turn i should i shouldn't have brought it up let's we'll get into that later you're gonna have a quick right. amount of time you're allotted to talk about this kind of stuff all right we're keeping a tight ship today that's right and uh happy to stay on course there will be more of that later in the episode so stay tuned andy what so why let, let's talk why are we talking about these do you have an answer uh, I guess we're talking about him. I don't have a great answer to that question, but I'll do my best, which is uh, we haven't delved into so recent a late era album as these. They came out within the last couple of years. Uh, there's sort of an interesting duality to them in that Egypt Station was this self-conscious kind of swinging for the fences of the pop charts. Uh, It's like a big production with Greg Kirsten and Ryan Tedder working on it, two sort of big names of the modern pop landscape. 
And then McCartney 3 is equally self-conscious, but in a different direction, about being this sort of homespun uh, solo, purely solo project where McCartney played all the instruments during quarantine. It's positioned as a sequel to McCartney and McCartney 2, I guess two of his best-loved solo albums, I would say. Uh, and they came out within a couple years of each other. But listening to them, I personally, I think they're sort of more similar than they are different. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I can I can add to that. I was thinking about why these were good ones to choose. And I think in addition to what you said, they're representative of sort of the two different major delusions people have around Paul McCartney albums or like the types that fans categorize them as maybe. I mean, Egypt Station is is interesting because not only does it have like one of the worst Paul McCartney songs on it that I think a lot of people commented on, the song Fa You produced by Ryan Tedder, but it was his most successful album commercially I think since 1984 or something like since that the soundtrack to the really insane movie he wrote called uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street since that soundtrack. So it, it was a popular album and partially because he was like chasing a dance challenge with one of the singles. And then, yeah, he was kind of trying to push for some pop stuff. So there's kind of like the big commercial return to form for Paul McCartney, which is something that happens throughout his career. And then McCartney 3 is this horrible thing that people do where they're like, Ah, uh, it's back to weird old Paul. It's like the White Album again. You know, it's like, ah, uh, just Paul playing all the instruments, having a good time, getting weird. Which people act like McCartney 3 is the last. But this happens every other album, I swear to God, if you read the reviews. And even the Egypt Station Rolling Stone review, which we read, says ex- eccentric about Egypt Station. So people are always trying to be like, oh, he's back to old eccentric Paul. So be- between these two albums, you have like a lot of the things around what people want of Paul McCartney and how people try to analyze his his solo career, which is something we could basically do a whole podcast about. Um, it is a funny thing where I feel like it's the opposite of what usually happens with the kinds of artists we talk about on here, where every album that comes out is like, this is the return to form. But with Paul, it's like, okay, well, this is now he's finally experimenting and letting go of the... Um, but it's funny for me as someone who doesn't love solo Paul McCartney, because it's like... When you really get back to the root of what, quote, weird Paul McCartney is, to me, it's like some of the worst stuff I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like that song. What's that song that's like, uh, My Little Secretary? What's it called? Temporary, Temporary Secretary. Secretary. It's awful to me. Just like, <laughs> I can never get past that song when I'm trying to listen to Paul. That's a touchstone because a lot of people love that song. I, there, I think there's a feature I read a couple years ago in The Quietest. I, I think that's what it was about the enduring love for McCartney too as like a predecessor to like bedroom indie pop, like electronic weirdness, like Alexis Taylor from hot chip and all these people being like temporary secretary was so ahead of its time and all this shit, you know, like, so there's this whole cult for that record. And, and actually I don't, I hate that song, but I do like a lot of that record better than almost any Paul McCartney solo music. The dark horse song on that record to me, the one that actually is sort of like 
a good sort of futuristic sounding ahead of its time electronic thing to me is the song Dark Room. That song is super, super sick. Yeah. Sort of like a fake digital reggae thing, but yeah, it's a great but one. It's cool. There's a bonus track called Secret Friend, which is maybe my favorite solo Paul McCartney song that's sort of like also like that or like um, almost like Eno and Byrne style. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's a lot to talk about today. I have a quick question for you guys, if you don't mind me cutting in here. Just to sort of set the tone for our discussion of these albums, which one is better to you, if you had to pick one? Wow. We're doing this now? Just all I want to know is that. No explanation. McCartney 3. (laughs) Egypt Station. Egypt Station. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> okay. I, I've been On, through a lot in the past. I, that didn't. That's not how I started out the past few days. That's how I ended Same. up. Same. I I came around to it. I mean, didn't come around to it, but I came around to it as being better than McCartney three. You're there. Okay. Cool. Anyway, I guess we got uh, some impressions to get through. Some money talk that no one's gonna listen to, but like we have to just do it for Sam because it makes him feel special. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Two against one on that shit, baby. <laughs> well, I have something this time that might change how some people look at this segment. I thought it was really powerful. Uh, so should we start there? Sure. This is an email I got, and I decided I want to read it out loud because I want both of you to hear it because I think there's some things for all of us in here. I got to refill my Grady's, So Yeah, I'm, I'm refilling my water glass right now, but you can keep talking. Okay, this is an email I received in my <laughs> inbox last week. Dear Sam, howdy. As a longtime fan of Late Era and Welcome to Chicago, I wanted to reach out to thank you specifically for your financial corner installments this season. What a gift. I've been following your investment tips and I'm proud to say I've secured a decent chunk that I'm hoping will eventually divest into a sizable nest egg. As a father of four young daughters, I'd like to thank you for teaching a man to fish, as it were, with your thoughtful and user-friendly advice. I thank you. And my family thanks you. He goes on. In my opinion, we are currently living through what I consider to be a golden age for podcasting, thanks in large part to your contributions to the medium. It is doubly is he rewarding. talking about you specifically or all three of us there? I read it as me specifically. <laughs> Just making sure. God help us. Uh, thanks in large part to your contributions to the medium. It is doubly rewarding to see someone on your level using his platform to uplift and teach the community, while a lot of your peers seem to view this as simply a runway for comedy careers that seem, let's face it, dubious at best. Mm, All this to say, thanks again, and I'll be listening. P.S. Andy, congrats on the new gig. I might have to make a pilgrimage and ask you to make me a Kingston Cobra, parentheses, haha. Namaste, Todd. Namaste, my friend. Uh Todd? Yeah, so I thought that was pretty powerful. That's nice. Yeah, I've sort of turned around on Financial Corner after hearing Todd's words. Um, are you sure that's what do you think? actually from Todd or from uh, uh, Cram Shuromsky? I, I don't understand that question. I don't, I don't appreciate the cynicism I, in your I, voice. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't help but notice sizable nest egg. Uh, that phrasing is exactly the same as phrasing that you used in your first installment of Financial Corner because it, it's a catchy phrase and uh i'd like to you know give you the benefit of the doubt and think that todd just remembered that phrase and used it but he didn't even use it as a quote it just seems like 
you writing a fake email to read on the air to as like sort of a bit of propaganda. What's this like and, the linguistic forensics corner? I didn't realize we had a a language expert, a handwriting expert on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Dubious comedy careers. Huh? Dubious comedy career and sizable nest eggs sort of have a similar uh, cadence to them. I don't think of my impressions as as comedy at all. In fact, I think of them as informative because they always relate to our subjects, except the time I did a Joe Pesci impression in the Joni Mitchell episode. But other than that, they it's interesting that you uh, took that line about dubious comedy careers as a uh, reference to your impression work, because Mm. I just saw it as sort of a broad assessment of the podcast field in general. But maybe you're feeling a little insecure about the Yeah, it seemed uh, to touch a nerve. No, I just... um, Sam and the last episode called me out saying this is the biggest platform for your comedy right before the impression segment and it threw me off because I had a really accurate Justin Timberlake impression and it derailed me. Do you have a tip for us or no? Uh, yeah, uh, honestly, this has been a, just a terrible week for my finance. So this week's advice: take the week off. Just <laughs> <laughs> give yourself time to reset. <laughs> because this has been awful for me and I think I was pushing a little too hard and I think I'll feel a lot better after just some rest so make sure to rest especially in these unprecedented times hard earned wisdom that's my favorite tip yet how much you lose brother uh it's not important I I don't want to get into it but let's just say it's been it's just been difficult all around, and I'm really looking forward to talking about music with you guys because it has been bleak. Cool. Word on the uh, market on the Discord app, the Discord chats that I frequent and stuff, is that Sadomsky is strongly considering selling off his prized Kings of Leon NFT collection. So uh, it's, that, come, uh, it's come down to some things I never thought I would do, but desperate times, as they say. impression segment everyone's favorite uh, on the show so i'm gonna get going with this have you gotten any emails by the way about your impressions changing someone's uh, life i don't read reviews i don't read the reviews okay <clears throat> what can i say about paul i mean i've never met someone with such a fantastic sense of harmony and uh when i began working with the beatles early on in their career when they were trying to expand what they were doing and uh, looking... Ooh, Bob Dylan. Uh, no. Uh, and, I, you know, I come from a classical background uh, as, well, as well as uh, producing a lot of uh, spoken word novelty. I, I've just been all... was all over the board, and I just... Uh, their vision was so impressive to me, and I know that I pushed them, but they... with, with my orchestrations and other arrangements, and my, but they really pushed me to think outside of the box and uh paul i have just, no idea who it might paul, be paul I'm, i was sure it was dylan after you said the thing about expanding and uh i'm thinking like leonard bernstein did he ever collaborate with the no, Beatles? Like, he's german I'll, I'll give you a hint i'm gonna do another impression micro impression and i'll give you a hint this person has their names have something in common okay i mean me and the guys in the band we just love the Beatles, and they've informed us so much. Uh, it's the uh, same as the first guy. <laughs> this is tanking. <laughs> they've informed us so much, uh, you know, in writing songs about unusual th- 
uh, things with unusual harmony about what what whatever you s- clocks and about uh, spies Jeff and Flynn? shivers and things Martin like this. Scorsese. I have a child <laughs> named Apple, and that's the name of the Beatles label. Gwyneth uh, Paltrow. <laughs> and that's right. the, you have a guess. I thought I did, but it was on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of any other famous Gwyneths, so I'm sort of at a loss. (laughs) I'm in the band uh, Hot Work. And actually, that's the opposite of what I'm in. Oh, Chris Martin. Yes, there you go. And who's the other one? George Martin. George Martin. George Martin and Chris Martin. You were close, Andy. Yeah. I feel like you gave me the layup there. Those were my great impressions. I got you got two out of the deal today. So, um, you know, someone who helped create the Beatles sound and is a, a lifelong friend uh, and collaborator of Paul McCartney's and then someone who is very influenced by Paul McCartney in terms of uh, melodic approaches to songwriting in Britpop and also just writing some of the worst lyrics of all time, Chris Martin from Coldplay. So I think that should that should get us in nicely and um, thanks to everyone who uh, gives me shout outs on the uh, impression segment. Beatles are my first real favorite band. They're the way that I learned about how chords worked from playing from Beatles songbooks. A big reason I started playing the piano. There, there's no probably no more significant musical thing in my life than the Beatles. You know, so I I come from that background, and I come from a pretty much lifelong conviction that Paul McCartney's solo career is a huge disappointment and that he was uh, became kind of pretentious uh, self-involved person who didn't want to take advice from anyone else and just kind of relaxed in his his mansions and uh, country homes and made silly and and consequential songs that was sort of my uh, lifelong feeling since I got into the Beatles in middle school and I've been trying to challenge that especially in the last two days with mixed results there are bright spots here and there but that's been the reality I've lived in for most of my life I came to the Beatles as a kid also I feel like I had a pretty typical path with them of like first being introduced to them by my parents being somewhat reluctant and then all of a sudden really loving them and by the time I was in high school I guess was was pretty hardcore about it I feel like in college I went through a period of listening pretty much only to the Beatles I like the first couple McCartney solo records. Like, I I think Ram is great. Uh, I feel like that's a pretty uncontroversial opinion at this point. The first McCartney self-titled is, like, charming. I listen to it fairly often just as, like, an LP in my house. It's just kind of, like, fun background music. And I like McCartney, too. Other than that, yeah, I'm just, like, (laughs) very disinterested in the recent solo output of Paul McCartney. I've never enjoyed just about anything I've heard, but made a concerted effort to also to change that. Recently, listening to these albums, some of the more recent things, Chaos and Creation of the Backyard is pretty cool. Got a little bit into The Fireman, his uh, collaboration with the producer Youth, which is, like, this crazy kind of down-tempo, chill-out 90s electronica which uh, I would recommend if you just want to hear a completely different side of Paul McCartney. But I guess I'm pretty indifferent to him as a solo artist is where it comes down for me. Yeah, I definitely loved the Beatles as a kid. It was a huge part of getting into music. Um, And I also think uh, Paul McCartney's like 21st century releases, I think I've probably listened to 
all of them. Um, they were like early examples of new stuff I checked out as a kid who liked classic rock music, starting with Driving Rain and kind of going through all of them. Similar to Springsteen, something about Paul McCartney in his late era is he's unwilling to make a minor statement. I guess the Fireman album is kind of an exception, but there is and has been this like gravitas around all his releases that can kind of be embarrassing for something like Egypt Station. But I just remember at the time, like Driving Rain felt like a really big deal with the 9-11 song on it, Freedom, and From a Lover to a Friend. And then Chaos and Creation, I remember coming out and it was like Nigel Godrich produced it and there was a lot of hype around that. So yeah, I, I haven't had like the moment Andy's talking about like where like in college, I, you know, I wasn't really listening to the Beatles at all. I haven't really had a recent or even relatively recent deep dive with any of their stuff, but it's probably coming down the road for me. But yeah, I will say every time I've tried with Solo Paul, I always reach a spot where I'm like, I can't. Like it happened on Ram at some point. Like I've always wanted to get into Ram because so many people I know are like, this is one of the best albums, but I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me for some reason. Yeah, never really had my moment with it. I uh, I have sort of um, similar feelings to Andy about the records that I, I like and agree with what you're saying, Sam. But, but maybe I'll uh, editorialize a little bit as I take us on a quick Who is Paul McCartney tour. Maybe not so quick, mm. but I'll try to be quick. So you, you know he's this boy from Liverpool who uh, formed the... The, the band The Beatles with some of his uh, uh, ch- childhood friends and they went from a little scrappy uh, cover band to, to gradually writing more and more originals to getting signed to, you know, the whole thing, The Beatles. Defining the LP format and the idea of the in-studio auteur rock band in the second half of their uh, career uh, and... McCartney got a lot of flack for kind of being the pompous control freak uh, wet blanket that kind of resulted in the Beatles breakup. He was the first to release a solo album, McCartney One, which, as Andy said, is like kind of it, that's the first solo Paul I ever heard, and it's a it's just a perfect microcosm of like moments of charm and like real Paul McCartney's like natural brilliance as a you know as a as like in terms of harmony and melody it's just like unbeatable there's there's traces of that on that record obviously and then you know he's also playing all the instruments and including all these loose instrumental jams and so it's like a petri dish for the problems with the rest of his career basically and of course like extremely silly lyrics yeah it's pretty it starts pretty much immediately even though i just said i like the record this sense of like a great talent sort of squandering himself yeah like it starts immediately on mccartney one of of just this feeling of like i'm just gonna fuck around and that's gonna be good enough to release and that's all i have to do yeah and then maybe i'm amazed is like the last song and you're like oh you still have this ability to craft amazing songs in you right that you're just like not you're choosing not to like work hard at them. Yeah, and there's stuff like junk, which is a beautiful melody, but it's sort of like underbaked. I mean, the the um got really negative reviews for these reasons that we're talking about. Um, and then he tried to go a bit harder on Ram, which uh, came out the following year, 1971, which probably 
yes, is his best solo album. I think most people think it's his best solo album. Uh, it was also kind of derided at the time for being like slight, but I think that it's had a huge influence along with McCartney one on kind of like kind of like indie pop as we know it. You know, like yeah, miniature pop records with sort of minimal materials that they're working with. Uh, yeah, this kind of lo-fi aesthetic. So he had the first number one since leaving the Beatles with Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, which is like a typical, uh, the best example of these kind of like whimsical pseudo-narrative suites that Paul did both in the Beatles and outside of it. Then in 1971, he he's forms Wings, also, which is sort of, you know, his attempt at a, a band after the Beatles, which is really just this unit throughout the 70s that changes um, personnel on every album, but always sort of includes Linda McCartney, his wife, on vocals, as do both of those albums I just mentioned. It, it's also like right off the bat, there's just insane, like a lot of nonsense lyrics, a lot of just like really indulgent tossed off like we're rocking out stuff um but with red rose speedway and band on the run especially band on the run many people think of as a class i mean that that could easily be the one that more people say is the best mccartney solo thing i think is the band on the run album it, it kind of felt like a, a mostly paul thing anyway because the a lot of the band like quit before they did it <laughs> More and more of these Wings albums started to have huge singles on them. Like their first big one was My Love, and then Listen to What the Man Said from Venus and Mars was the number one single. Band on the Run, the title track, obviously, the song Jet. By Wings at the Speed of Sound in 76, they'd had four number one albums in a row. Then they had another couple, too, that basically were sagging commercially and derided more and more. And then he dissolved the band, I guess, in the 1980 or 1981? 1981 which is right around the time you released McCartney 2, which is a return to, you know, this is just me, Paul, playing everything, experimenting with new wave music, just like going all out. Then uh, the variegated and often depressing 80s for Paul begin with another big commercial peak, which if anything ever didn't hold up, it is uh, his Stevie Wonder collaboration, Ebony and Ivory, which is his 28th number one single, Ebony and Ivory, the piano keyboard colors and also the colors of people's skin so you can uh, do the math if you don't know the song around the time you know around this time he appeared on thriller and then he also did his own michael jackson duet say 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 obviously this was like the height of michael jackson's popularity so that did well um then he did a bunch of albums in the 80s collaborated with this producer and songwriter eric stewart um, he did like kind of an, a new wavy album called Press to Play, which people really didn't like, but I have kind of a soft spot for it, maybe because it has like some overlaps with stuff I like, just aesthetically, sophisticated and things in the 80s. This is begins the pattern, this Flowers and Dirt from 1989. This is like the return to form Paul album, the first of countless ones where people were like, now he's back, which was um, an album that he wrote heavily in collaboration with Elvis Costello and he'd been doing kind of collaborations throughout the 80s like David Gilmore he worked with David Gilmore a bunch Carl Perkins he just was like always doing little collaborative things but um yeah this one was one where it's like Elvis Costello was a big part of the creative process and kind of 
an a, a example of something he would do later on, which is try to get like a younger, hipper voice in there. Elvis was still, uh, you know, like a decade into his career there. Um, yeah, he like sort of ceded creative control to him a bit more than he'd ever done with anyone else, I think, which is relevant because they didn't get along. I don't think he could really handle it. Like they didn't really get along, but it does, it is like a strong album, or at least it sounds like accomplished music that people were trying to make well. The 90s, I feel like that there is twofold. I remember, I, uh, it, it begins his lethal hobby of writing classical music which could be a whole other podcast because he's done quite a bit of it. People try to sweep that under the carpet. But I had this VHS of regarding his piece, Working Classical. That's all you really need to know. That's the level he's working on, the late 90s classical work that he wrote. But he also wrote the Liverpool Oratoria, wrote some other things. This is also around the time, sorry to jump in and maybe you're going to cover this, but he's doing like these like ambient techno records yes. <laughs> around the same time as well. Right. A very strange time for Paul. And then he's also kind of reckoning with the Beatles' legacy and responding to it. He and George Harrison put together the Beatles Anthology Project, which is like this multi-part documentary, a really popular book, a lot of unreleased recordings in the uh, associated record set. And so after that, he does 1997's Flaming Pie, which is the one that's like, oh, this is really Paul's bat. You know, like this is like <laughs> Paul trying to do the Beatles again and Ringo's on it and like all this stuff. So that, that one does have some nice stuff on it, but it's the beginning of this, really this thing that's like, oh, this reminds me of the aesthetic of this Beatles song or something, you know. Anyway, so he did that. He does like a old school rock and roll covers album, mostly Run, Devil, Run, which again, like another fucking trope of later albums and something John Lennon had already done. Yeah, then we get into Driving Rain, as, as Sam mentioned, which got a lot of attention for the post 9-11 song. I remember when that came out and that was one of my earliest experiences with kind of being like, oof solo beetle like man paul what is that you know he was trying to go kind of raw and they did it in like two weeks and so it was this kind of again like a mccartney one and two idea of like let's let's make it raw and let's make it stripped down it really is those things but also really boring chaos and creation in the backyard is is 2005 and i think that that is Top five, definitely, McCartney solo records um, produced by Nigel Godrich on the recommendation of George Martin. Thank you very much. Tie into earlier. Nigel Godrich, like, really tried to push Paul. It was the first thing that Paul hadn't produced himself in a really long time, maybe ever. Nigel, like, rejected songs, told him to fire his band that he was working with and, like, do these stripped-back arrangements, added, like, weird piano loops, orchestral flourishes, things like that. The songs are pretty strong, although, like any McCartney album, there's unbelievably bad shit on it. But I think that's important because it's an example of a rare instance where somebody really challenged Paul McCartney to not just do the first dumb thing that crossed his mind. And I think it shows on that record. You can really hear it. Yeah, yeah. if you listen to that record, like sort of back to back with these two records we're talking about today, which I just did this morning. Yeah, the level of like songcraft is just immediately clear how much higher it is because there was someone being like, this one sucks or, you know, yeah. take this one a little further than it is right now. And similarly to the Elvis Costello album, 
Paul didn't handle this totally great. Like yeah. he almost fired him a couple of times, but then of course it was critically beloved and I think won some Grammys and then he kind of embraced it again. But um, at the same time, uh, during that time, he was working on more of a traditional uh, Paul rock album that did involve his touring bands. Throughout this time, by the way, he's releasing a lot of live albums. Like he's making a name for himself as a really popular, dynamic touring act and getting rich as fuck more than he already was with these concerts. So Memory Almost Full is 2007, grab bag of stuff recorded uh, before and after Chaos and Creation, basically. Memory Almost Full, such a perfect late era album title and kind of just like, it's like the real beginning of the late era that we're talking about here, I think. And then blah, 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 some other shit, you know. 2013, he does new. Everyone says that's the return to form. I remember that. Then eventually we get up to Egypt Station in 2018. And you know what? People said that was a return to form too. And that, which is insane. Which is insane. And we're going to talk about why that's insane. Sam, why don't you start us off? What were your impressions of this record? Um, Egypt Station. Well, yeah, I think all of the pop co-writes on it are just embarrassing to me. Like I was saying, with his unwillingness to do anything minor... There is a feeling on this album where it's like Paul McCartney is listening to the pop and rock music on the radio and being like, let's see if I can get a handle on that. Some of it reminds me of like the kind of Imagine Dragons thing. Some of it reminds me of like fun. That song for you is probably the worst uh, offender. Come on, baby, now. Let me look at you. Talk about yourself. One of two songs on the record that are sort of openly sexual and horny, which is just I, I, just an unpleasant overlay on the experience of this whole record. That just sounds bad. You think of like why don't you why don't you just do it in the road and stuff? Why don't we just do it in the road and stuff like that? But if you go back and listen to as much solo Paul as I did, uh, you realize that really the cheeky I'm gonna use cheeky because he uses that word every fucking other word in interviews <laughs> cheeky sex songs is like a real trope for him and uh, it kind of reminds me at this phase of like I remember when Woody Allen when he did like Curse of the Jade Scorpion and he was casting himself with like Charlize Theron as his love interest it's like that kind of level of embarrassment with the septuagenarian paul sex song here well i don't mind like older people singing about sex but I, well, one very thing left out, of you. <laughs> i mean like i think yeah anyway but the one of the things you left out was that this is around the time he collaborated with kanye uh, and rihanna yes so he was like back on the charts again for that right. and there was like that whole four or five seconds paul mccartney yeah like meme thing around that time and then the Ray Schremer Black Beatles song and like that whole thing so I feel like there was with this album this sort of like I can play with the kids like which to me the thing that's that really turns me off with this record is that there really is this sense of pandering or it just sounds like someone was like well this is how pop songs work now they they jump right in then there's like this little bridge then there's like the thing in the chorus like it's all just so formulaic and schlocky i just hate it i sort of wish the album was more like that because then it would be like 
it would be more interesting to me if it was like the full-fledged Paul McCartney attempt at making a 2018 chart pop album. But a lot of it really isn't. Like to me, at least, it's just like these kind of half-baked Paul songs that are given maybe this slick sheen, but they are in this kind of like unsatisfying middle ground where I feel like it would at least be bad in a more interesting way if if he was like really going for sounding like one direction all the time or whatever i feel like it's doomed however you look at it just because the songs are so bad like yeah that song caesar rock oh my god yeah i thought it was awful play a little bit of that one (laughs) like there's nothing you can do when this is the material you're bringing to the studio your album is it's doomed there's the egypt station the little egyptian Yeah, which is like, why is this record called Egypt Station? I have the answer for that. So let's listen to a little bit of this. The animating principle of this song is that he says, she's a rock, and that sort of sounds like he's saying, she's her rock. Yeah, this is fucked up. Oh, it's so eccentric. It calls back to his weird ways. Good old Paul. Right. Imagining the audience at his shows like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this will never make it into the set list. This is a good, you know, uh, ref- reflects on this album. He said, I like the words Egypt Station. It reminded me of the, quote, album albums we used to make. Egypt Station starts off at the station on the first song, and then each song is like a different station. So it gave us some idea to base all the songs around that. What does that refer to? I don't know. <laughs> I think of it as a dream location that the music emanates from. Okay. And also that's that on the cover is like some painting that kind of inspired the, of, that he did in the 80s that kind of inspired this quote unquote world. Uh, there's no world, you know, and, and, no. the, and the like I remember reading these reviews where it's like Paul's writing from different characters. And so it's like getting mm. what it's like. So when he says album, it's like album, your impressions, they're all the same. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's edit that out. Sam, just don't, don't leave that for the beginning. Okay, let's not do this again. I won't. I won't talk to you about this again. In fact, all right. Yikes! Let's get on with it, guys. Yeah, cool. Let's cool it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah. Ooh. So <laughs> that one threw you off. <laughs> Sucker punch. So this is the album albums we used to make, he said. So he he's thinking of this sort of as like a concept album, which is represents sort of this alternate thread that Andy that we're that you're kind of we were kind of outlining where it's like courting pop success. He does come on to me or whatever that song is. He's doing like a dance challenge. He's working with Ryan Tedder. But the most of the album is produced by this guy, Greg Kirsten, who is kind of an example of like prestige pop production. Like he worked with Adele. He's worked with a ton of people doing stuff that kind of basically takes stuff that the Beatles did in the studio, like thumping upright piano sounds, certain kind of drum sounds, bendy string arrangements, certain kind of ways instruments are treated. His sound with everything is kind of like making what the Beatles did into this sort of uniform pop aesthetic that everyone kind of has to learn as a producer. And so it's weird to hear this thing 
like it's like Coldplay and shit. It's like the same thing. It's like Paul McCartney going to this guy whose brand is kind of using the Beatles as an aesthetic. So he's bringing this back on, and the result is shit that sounds like really corny, low-level Paul McCartney parody songs, basically, to me. I mean, it's like if you hear, if you hear, let's play like the first second here of uh, Despite Repeated Warnings, which is this multi-sectional thing that kind of seems, it seems very Beatles referential. It's like multiple sections. Despite repeated warnings. Okay, as soon as you hear that, I'm like out the door. There's nothing this song can do to redeem. It's it's just like automatic Beatles parody song, basically. Like, where is it going to go from this to redeem itself? Well, it tries really hard. This song's yeah. all over the place. Yeah, it, it, he's really going for it. It's like the much ado about nothing, like big time. He's trying to make a day in the life type song. Yeah, this is all the same song. Like, this is Chicago. Right. Yes, this is Chicago. I did think about Chicago a lot because I was thinking about the lyrics. And I was like, how do we even judge the lyrics of Paul? They're like always, like, they're always irritating, but they've just never been good. And that's not his talent. It's sort of like, we're talking about, like, what do, what do critics expect from a Paul McCartney album? Well, not good lyrics. At the same time, yeah. it's, they still fucking have lyrics. Yeah, they just have to be passable. I feel like, or they just have to sort of like not grab your attention with their badness too much, which these ones, I guess, sort of fail to do. Yes. But, okay, can we talk about, is there anything, any songs that we liked on this album? I'll start with one thing that I kind of liked. Okay, great. Which is, could we hear like the last minute or so of Dominoes? Uh, Yeah, that's the best track on here, I think. Like this, I was pleasantly surprised by just this sort of groove. They let it, he lets it run. He doesn't really fuck with it too much. Generously, the first time I listened to it, I was like, this sounds like Stereo Lab. Yeah. Look, I mean, this, Greg Kirsten is a talented producer when he's got like a decent idea or good material. Like this, this is like production wise, arrangement wise, that's a cool thing like that's both of them kind of finding their groove yeah that song like the the song part of it has like this kind of white albumy thing going on again totally. it's just like you're comparing it to something else that he did always but yeah it has that same sort of chromatic movement that's like all over the white album yeah it has more interesting i mean one thing like versus like chaos and creation and other late paul albums i mean his chords are like one of his great contributions to music, like his sense of chord. This uh, this album, like, they really just like below the bar for him in terms of like at least like interesting harmonies. Yeah, like, I think it starts kind of strong. I like the melody and I don't know. Yeah, that's another like, one of yeah. the stronger songs. Like as like the quasi opening track, I thought this kind of makes a cool statement. It also just sounds different than what you'd expect. Sort of sounds like Coldplay. Yeah, it does. This also has like an the imagine chords, kind of. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's again, sort of it's sounds like self parody, but 
it's it's definitely this is definitely uh i think this like confidants dominoes those are probably the best on the on the on the album um to me i would uh i would agree with all three of those yeah those are probably the best ones i would say the first half of it is is pretty strong except for uh, you at least it's tolerable and then you get into like this thorny territory with like people want peace i mean you've heard i'm saying the title you can you've heard it you know already in your head if you don't know the song yeah Jesus Christ. There's also something about this, like, this rich guy being like, it's simple. We just want peace. And yeah. being like, well, it's actually a lot more complicated. Even Bono than that. would be like, all right, how do we complicate this a little? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, like, I had to I had to listen to this a lot of Paul McCartney just to like forget about my irritation with hearing a person this rich and successful say almost anything that's supposed to be some kind of personal like sincere personal expression like yeah anything where it's like he was going through a dark period i'm like no he wasn't you know like i I, yeah what does that mean for paul mccartney yeah that's kind of like my and maybe this is like a segue into mccartney 3 but i think that's kind of my issue with solo mccartney is a lot of the things people like i always felt a disconnect between how people write about it and talk about it and what i actually hear like, oh, he's just bashing things out. Well, it sounds super expensive to me. Yeah. And it's like his melodies are so manicured and like finessed. It's like it's hard for me to reconcile the idea of people being like, you know, the way you might say it about like a Neil Young album. Like, you love it because it's so rough around the edges. Like, I don't get any of that roughness. I barely ever get any kind of tension in his songwriting. Yeah. Like, so yeah. I think McCartney 3 sort of it wipes away the thing Egypt Station does of like, I want this to sound as like ornate and elegant and expensive as possible and which creates its own problems, but at least sort of leans more into like this feeling of like, yeah, song's going to go on seven minutes, not because it's this like opus, but because I just played it for seven minutes and I just like kept soloing stuff like that is like a little more charming to me than like the swings for pop singles or whatever. Okay, everybody, this is, been long overdue um but you know we're halfway through the season already but time has flown we just um we've been getting a lot of tweets emails whatsapps everything about asking about a certain part of the team that, uh, that you may you may have heard in our credits that we haven't really uh acknowledged or introduced yet um i th- i think of him as the secret uh, wep the concealed weapon of the show, the secret sauce, if you will, that makes us sound as fucking fire as we've been sounding. He joined us for season two, and I think you can really hear the difference. Yeah, so anyway, we just want to introduce um, our friend. He's a great musician, uh, great mixer, obviously, great guy, and has a lot of other thing, other reasons we wanted him on the show. Uh, this is Ian Wayne, everybody. So let's say hello to Ian. What's up, Ian? Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. You try, try to be Hello, a little guys. swifter on the uptake there. When when we say your name, you come in right after. Hello, guys. Hello, guys. So this is the part that I've been worried about the whole time. 
the Zoom. Ever since, ever yes, this moment where I'm introduced and then I have to say hello. <laughs> hello, guys. Tell us a little bit of something. One thing about yourself, and and why you want, and why you wanted to do the show. One thing about myself. Let's see. Well, I'm I'm 31, which is factors prominently in my in my story <laughs> yeah, these that's, days. That's really good. All right, it's kind of fun fact. Yeah. That's I mean, the, I guess the the you know it feels like the some at times it feels like the only thing about me. Um, probably that's something that um, our listeners can this, understand. This old song and dance again. You live in right. Brooklyn. You live in Brooklyn. No, I actually don't. I live in Queens. You live. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's this is typical the kind of research Winston brings to the show. You now live in Queens. Stuff. We used to live. I it's live in Queens. Ridgewood is basically Brooklyn these days. You know what I'm saying? Quicklin. I don't know. It depends who you ask. Hey. Uh, you and I are in a band together, right? That's true. That's true. We're in a band office um, culture together. We're in the band office culture together. I make music under my own name, Ian Wayne. I'm, uh, I've spent the last pandemic year making a uh, very prominent name for myself as a freelance audio engineer. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I'm 31. <laughs> all right, all right. No, no, more of the, no more of the age stuff here. We don't tell yeah. people how old we are on the show. <laughs> I'm also 31. But, oh, Andy, uh, we're not supposed to be talking about age. We agreed when we started the show. We're ageless. And no, like I these just albums. Want, I want timeless. I'm talking. I'm talking. And I just want listeners to know that Ian has a newly robust beard since last time yeah, I saw him. That threw me and off it, too. And it looks great. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I feel like it. it is um, like I don't really have control over um, how long it is anymore like part of me would like to to trim it but i think i've become the per- a person with this length beard now mm-hmm. so it's sort of here to stay 31 and bearded living in queens absolutely exactly right that's that's puttering about <laughs> puttering about <laughs> but you know i am i really look forward to these podcast mixing days okay okay great well that leads perfectly into what i was going to say ask you as a first question um, let's, I, I know it's going to be very hard for you to separate this question from issues of content or personal preference. Cause some personalities on this show are definitely more magnetic than others and just likable. Um, but let this from a purely sonic as an engineer, from a purely sonic perspective, who is your favorite member of the podcast? Uh, from a sonic, you mean like whose whose recordings or whose voice do I take like it? The take most? it, take it as you will. Just sonically, who do you like? Whose voice do you like to hear the most? I pass. Next, we can go on to the next question. <laughs> who needs to up their game sonically on the podcast? Yeah, no, I think um, you all need to up your game. Um, of course, unfortunately. Um, but no, I mean, I think that um. I think my favorite voice to hear is um, is Andy. You knew it. Okay. It's it's Andy. Okay. Thanks, um, Ian. You know, honestly, there's no, there really isn't a consistently worst recording, nor is there a consistently best recording. And I think that um, um, you, it all sucks. Uh, it all sucks. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 
Uh, Winston, I feel like you were gunning for that best recording uh, seat. That must no, sting a little bit. I respect Ian's a pro, and that's got a lot of gear going on in that apartment. I don't set like when I when we're talking hiring decisions. I don't settle for second best. You know, I want someone who's going to be a tough, who's going to always make us keep us on our toes, make us want to do better. And I'm taking notes on this, and I will try to get my compression and my my EQs and my levels and my timbre to be a little higher quality for the rest of the season. So I thank you for that honesty, Ian. You're welcome. No, um, you know, you really can work with anything except like crazy um, noises when people are speaking. Like when if you touch your, your microphone, your microphone stand while you're speaking, mm-hmm. I'm, that's impossible to get rid of and that kind of thing. But Good um, luck mixing this in. Yeah, I know. That Good sort luck of doing thing. This. Right. Have fun with yeah, this I, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So all those times Thank you guys. Sam is slamming the toilet seat in the middle of, of like a history segment, you get that and you just have to that was like one time. One time I had to run out very quick and I didn't slam it. I thought it was turlet. Yeah, it was a turlet. Turlet. Yeah, don't don't help himself mythologize his bits. I do like to see the microphones. This is another like I grew a beard and I became a guy who's like, oh, nice. I like to see these microphones. <laughs> this has got to be fascinating for the listeners. Let's move on to another question, Sam. Oh, sure. I had a question. Um, big fan. Uh, so happy to have you on the pod. Um, what has it been like for you trying to strike a balance between our lo-fi sort of visceral early work in Welcome to Chicago and this more kind of studio as an instrument uh, sort of um, hi-fi professional sound of late era? Uh, yeah, I think it's a great question. Thank you. Um, to to really to really spend some time with um personally um uh away from the microphone <laughs> truthfully i wonder if anyone could hear the difference between uh a a, a really good sounding podcast and welcome to chicago um which is not i wonder the proportion of people that could yeah I'm sure that people can, but I bet, I really, I just think most of the time, if you're listening yeah. to a podcast, I don't know. I mean, maybe I, I'm wrong I agree, because there's sort of this, like, elite, you know, global elite, like, everyone assumes that people all around the country and the world know what a noise floor is, you know, like, white noise. But, you know, a lot of people, that's just how they live. They don't mind hearing that, you know. They don't need you know, spit shine, polish. I mean, thank you for giving it to this podcast, but I'm just saying people don't need that necessarily or even want that. Right. I mean, it's the same thing in music. It's like, you know, does your, no, do you want not, your podcast, but... you know, do you want your podcast okay. to, to demonstrate that, you know, you're a person in a room with a feeling or do you want it to, mm. do you want your podcast to be? Uh, Andy, do you have a question? Yeah, Ian, thanks. Uh, I was hoping maybe you could take us uh, behind the scenes of the show a little bit and tell us when Winston sends you the audio files, what sorts of things does he ask you to make his voice sound better uh, than Sam and I's? I think we all know this is going on. Winston's trying to angle for some special treatment. I have nothing to hide. And uh, I think that the listeners would be happy to to know. I think we should just put it out there. What, What sort of demands... Is Winston making of you? Let's just be honest about it. Um, 
Okay. Uh, well, um, w let's see. What demands is he making? He. Uh, uh, no demands. He. You know, I'm sorry. It's just the fact is, you know, I'm a nice he doesn't guy. ask for anything. He's a very nice guy. We go He's way back. <laughs> and if, are you yeah, familiar with the... Oh, he lives in Brooklyn. He's a <laughs> real, we real to... connection. We, we, he's always, he lives in Brooklyn in my heart. We used to live uh, right by each other. You know, we go, have you ever heard of the concept and the importance of going a long way back with somebody and the kind of bonds and the trust and uh, the dynamics? Yeah, that, that... it sounds like sort of like uh, the thin blue line is the kind of thing we're talking about here. Like you guys cover up for each other. Uh, there's <laughs> yeah. no, no real responsibility. Throw other people under the bus. I've, yeah. I've heard that before, but it's uh, off base. I mean, I don't have time to get into the ways of the off base. I love that movie, though. But this isn't a podcast about movies. So. Another reason that we wanted to have you for the show, obviously, is that you have a really deep background with Grady's Cold Brew. And uh, that's something that we've shared, you and I, in the past. And That's right. I thought, it, yeah, it would be good to bring you on because you have some perspective on that. Can you tell us, tell me a little bit about your history with the, the drink? I wear many hats. Wow. Some of them are in music. Some of them are in food and beverage. Uh, um, I've been a, you know, I've been, I've worked at, I've worked in restaurants in New York City for many years. This and, is true. Uh, I, I do consider myself a bit of a snob, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, for better or worse. And uh, I remember the first, I remember seeing Grady's Cold Brew, you know, in the, in the beverage aisle. Yeah, I remember seeing the like See a one jug? liter. Yeah, I guess that's that a jug. Yeah, New Orleans style, the original flavor in a jug. Right, right. I remember seeing the New Orleans style original in a jug, and um, not being so sure what it was, but then finding myself back at uh, Winston's apartment and opening the fridge and seeing uh, seeing that jug in there. Just and saying, let's give it a try. You said just tellingly because I do think it was just. The only th I think uh, yeah. it was about the only thing in there <laughs> at the time, and you know what's fascinating is you and I. I think we're just having the New Orleans style, but you could also, as, as you as everyone here knows, you could get French vanilla, hazelnut mocha. There are a number of other flavors, and uh, you don't also don't have to buy it in a jug. You can buy it in a box. Uh, you can get the cold brew bags, which are excellent and convenient, and uh, is a staple in my household. You know, also you can get uh, decaf Grady's and various apparel, and uh, you can find uh, recipes uh, online for different cocktails or, or other things that you can make with Grady's. But yeah, I just really recommend just the, your basic smooth pull of the New Orleans style. Just that'll get you hooked. So you know something about the website and why that might be important to our listeners, right, Ian? I do. You know, there's this interesting thing that I know about the website, which is that, um, you know, if you're listening to my voice at this moment, you have a unique opportunity. You can go to gradyscoldbrew.com, and uh, if you do, and you make your first purchase today, uh, and you use the, the promotional code LATEERA20, you can get 20% off that first purchase. And, uh, you know, they've got coffee. Uh, and, and you drink it every day. So why not make your first purchase um, of Grady's Cold Brew? Grady's will hook you in a good way. It's a good, it's a good brew. You know, there's no uh, reason to, to doubt it. 
and there's no reason not to be thankful and grateful Amen. Uh, that it's here and thankful to Grady. Great. Now you're speaking our language. No, that's what we like. On this much, we can agree. Wonderfully put. That was pretty good. Yeah. Give that like a that seven actually, out of Honestly, that was the best. Seven out was, of ten. That was the best best sentence of audio for me, definitely, I think. Oh. Um, thanks. So, you know, there's had some, I had a moment of clarity um, there. Mm. A moment of inspiration, in my opinion. That was yeah, definitely. powerful, moving, even. And it, wait, until wait until you hear, you hear the, 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 the sort of my, my vocal, vocal treatment. Looking forward to it. Anything else for Ian? Thank I just you, really Ian. appreciate the work you're doing for us, Ian, and it's nice to see your face on the Zoom. Thanks, guys. And I got to say, it's like a true pleasure to uh, to be mixing this pod every week and to learn about some some music I hadn't heard and hear some hear some good uh Josh's and jokes and mm-hmm. and uh and to to hear your sweet voices. Cool. Real quick, Paul McCartney, yes or no? Yes. yes. Very good. Okay, folks. Well, that's been Ian Wayne and uh, let's get back to the show. To the show. For me, it's like I was trying to think about, okay, why do I dislike McCartney 3 so much and like trying to compare it to like some other um, icon of the era. Like if if I was hearing Dylan kind of doing the same thing of just like fucking around in the studio in a fairly low stakes way and trying his best to put it together into an album by himself, like I think I would like it a lot more. Maybe that's just because right. I like Dylan more, but also because the Paul stuff still seems sort of needy to like impress you. Mm, like. Yes. It, yeah. It's like, look what I can do all by myself, but it's not actually that impressive, you know? Right. Whereas if if it was a little more ramshackle maybe or a little more like rambling, that might be more charming. But it still has this impulse toward polish and toward being impressive that ends up turning me off about it. Yeah, if you like made it in your bedroom, okay, why is Josh Homme there? Right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, there really totally. is this like people-pleasing sensibility, but... At the same time, I remember this album came out like right after Letter to You by Springsteen, which I liked a lot. But I did have a feeling of like, you know, I wish Springsteen could maybe learn a little bit from the approach of this album, where it's like there's like a slight lowering of the bar for himself of like make an album that exists within its own world. Do it kind of like on your own terms, like allow yourself to just follow an idea you know, like I read that he came up with some of the stuff just because he was composing for like a film and he was like, oh, actually, I like that little riff. Maybe I can turn that into a song. Like, I do think this is Paul McCartney maybe settling into what to me is like maybe a more sustainable late era path than that thing of like every album has to have a big single, mm-hmm. a huge tour, a wild narrative. It, you know, like I think that to me has become kind of grating with Paul McCartney releases. To return to your earlier point about his sort of like inability to make a minor statement, it is kind of funny to me (laughs) that even something like what you just described, he still has to do the thing of like, this is the long-awaited sequel to this sort of legendary series of albums in my career. like Which immediately raises the stakes. Right, right. It's like a rap uh, mixtape name. No, I, I ever yeah. since like definitely the late '90s, he's been everything has sort of interacted with his legacy self consciously in a fucking irritating way to me. And so this doesn't feel like a new move 
like other things have a McCartney the McCartney solo like he plays the instruments almost all the instruments on a bunch of other albums and he's always right. trying to do like the stripped down rocker and like make it sound like the fucking white album or whatever the problem with this thing is like all the songs are bad like all the song and they're self-serious they're not they're like with a couple of really miserable exceptions like there's a lot of like serious platitudes and like minor i don't know just like mostly it's just you know the josh homie thing is it sounds like jack white solo album beck queens of the stone it has this really the most ugly drum sound to me it's just like so grating like in terms of what it takes is a lo-fi aesthetic, which is actually the sound of like a lot of commercial rock records now, like the Foo Fighters or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Black what he's keys. calling a lo-fi aesthetic is actually this super mediocre kind of crushed drum thing. And and just, yeah, yeah. I'd rather listen to the songs on YouTube station. I'd rather listen to Greg Kirsten's production than what, whatever this is. Um, to the point about self-seriousness, the song, the opening lyrics to the song Women and Wives were one of those things of like, there's nothing that can be done with this song to like redeem oh God, this, where he bad. says, hear me women and wives, hear me husband and lovers. It's like, okay, I'm listening. What we do with our lives seems to matter to others. Like, no shit, dude. <laughs> like, that's supposed to be some profound point. This is like yeah. Chris Martin-esque. Yes. It's like... Uh, a man can sit, like, finally discovering that other people have feelings and, like, writing a ballad about it. Yeah. I actually, I there were some moments on this album that were my favorite among both albums. I really like the song Pretty Boys. It kind of reminds me of Guided by Voices a little, or, like, a Pollard solo project. Looking to my lens. I like this song, too. Yeah, this is definitely on the... On the higher end of things. Like if someone was like, this is from Robert Pollard's new side project, you know, I'd be like, oh yeah, like it's kind of a cool sound. Objects of desire. Yeah, I, I thought that line was funny. Yeah, I like that he's singing about male models. Like to me, that's kind of like a funny Paul song yeah. in a way that isn't dopey. Yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a better kind of yeah, Paul Wimsey. Yeah. I also like Kiss of Venus. Yeah, that yeah, one's pretty that's good. that's the other one that I enjoyed. Again, it's, it's, it, it's accomplished in terms of songwriting for late Paul, but I do find it irritating. It would be kind of neat if he just did a record of voice and guitar stuff like this. This is like the chaos and creation appeal. But not as good. Um, I kind of liked it. It really overstayed its welcome, though. Like, I sort of liked the. Please don't say deep, deep feeling. Is that what you're going to say? Deep, deep feeling. Oh my god! <laughs> to me, that's the, one of the worst things I've ever heard. Got a in my deep, life. deep pain. <laughs> it's 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 emotion. Really bad lyrics. Sometimes I wish it would stay. Sometimes I wish it would go away. When would you wish it would stay? It's the worst lyrics ever. There was something about it that I was like, okay, this is an example of. I listened to it twice and I had different feelings. The first time, I I actually just actively didn't listen to what he was say- saying at all. You know, yeah. which is really hard because he makes his vocals very present and understandable but it's yeah it's a full eight and a half minutes long you, and you know really feel deep, it deep yes. feeling. 
This also like that thing about him composing some of this for a film and then just stretching them out into songs. I'm kind of like, this does sound like an interstitial thing and like some thing that he was, uh, I don't know, like some minor BBC production he was working on or something. It has some vibe to it, at least, and the chords are like kind of interesting. I don't know. For some reason, when I was like walking around cloudy day listening to this I, I, I was like this is this is top tier for me but then it continues and then you listen to what he's saying metronome sound it, I, it also like has sort of the illusion of going to all these different places but like it doesn't really I think that's sort of my problem with it it's like you know Paul writes these songs that it's like a suite of like very different music one after the other. But this to me was like, I don't know. It's just like the same shit over and over for eight minutes, but like now it's in halftime or something like that. Or now this part is layered over that part, which I guess could be cool, but I just, I I, I was not feeling that song. I thought of it and the opening track in the tradition of like the jammer, the like Paul McCartney to jammer type thing. Uh, This is being very, very generous. Like, in a way, I was like, "All right, like maybe there's something that sounds kind of stoned and cool in these, but they're they're really boring. I mean, the the record is really boring. Well, I mean, I don't know. Lavatory Lil will get your attention. I almost don't even want to talk about that song because it's just too easy to make fun it's, of. It's low hanging fruit uh, <laughs> for someone else's. Podcast. It's funny that uh, Lavatory Lil. It sounds like something on the second side of Abbey Road, right? Yeah, and it's titled in a way that is designed to evoke that it also sounds josh Hom on the uh follow-up album with celebs whatever it's called he's on this song and it makes sense because it sounds sort of like queens of the stone age white stripes shit i don't know is it really eccentricity I would t- I take I take Egypt Station's attempt at polish and actually striking out it in different directions over this kind of I'm just getting back to basics hanging around me house thing. Anyway, let's get into our let's get into the official evaluations. Yeah, so this is the final section of our show known as fantasy or delusion where we assess each of the records we're talking about by a simple metric titled after a late period Billy Joel collection of classical solo piano music known as Fantasies and Delusions. Basically, if we like a record, we call it a fantasy. If we dislike it, we call it a delusion. Um, I went into this really... I like Paul McCartney. Some days I might say he's my favorite Beatle. Uh, I wanted to like this music a lot. I was eager to find the good things about it. And I wanted to at least like one of these records to be able to brand it a fantasy. But I'm going to have to call both of them delusions. I'm Like I said at the beginning, I'd give a slight edge to Egypt Station uh, because it at least feels like it's pointed in a particular direction, even if it doesn't have a lot of clarity about that direction. Like it at least feels like it's trying to, to do something. Whereas McCartney 3 just has this quality to me of like, I'm going to just completely fuck around but present it in a way that you're supposed to take it as like accomplished and uh 
I don't like I don't usually relate to the term self-indulgent as like a pejorative criticism for music. Usually my feeling is like I'm I'm interested in what this artist has to say. I'm choosing to listen to it, so I don't really care if they indulge in themselves, but this album just felt it made me understand what people talk about when they say self-indulgent about music in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. Uh and uh Egypt Station, a little better, but just still has some of the worst music I've ever heard in my life on it. So I'm, I'm going with Delusion for both. Yeah, I'll also give a double Delusion um, while giving McCartney 3 the edge, just because I think it's, to me, a more noble endeavor and a step in the right direction for what I, I like from Paul McCartney. Um, I think there have been some good brushes with pop music from him over the last like two decades. Like I really like that song Queenie Eye that's on the album New. I just think it's, a, it's like every once in a while he still just writes a melody that feels really just like instant and you're just like, oh yeah, this guy's a master. But I, there really aren't any moments like that on Egypt Station for me. And then on McCartney 3, there's songs like Kiss of Venus and Pretty Boys that I think sort of charming and I would return to. But yeah, both are pretty much great examples of mistakes that late era artists make that I'm just not interested in or that aren't useful to me in any way. So double delusion. Yeah, same for me. I mean, I really, I, 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 well, I did a lot of listening for this and I, I, I came out positively with finding some solo Paul that I thought was like your feeling about those two songs, Sam. Like all listening to all of these albums is like panning for a little bit of gold, like looking for traces of the raw talent that he has. It's really a catalog that you have to judge all against itself, really. You have to accept kind of the conditions set up by albums like McCartney One and then Wings which is like, this is all self-indulgent. This is somebody who has set up conditions where he's almost never challenged to do anything but his shtick. And so within that, you have to like find a roadmap for yourself. You could say that about like artists we talk about, like Dylan or whatever, but it's just like, to me, there's like a poisonousness in Paul's way of doing that that is just not charming, not really intellectually... It's like the ultimate like archetypal later career. We didn't even mention that he did a standards album, you know. He's done everything that later artist does that we kind of, that you kind of make fun of, you know. So um yeah, there's there's a lot of on almost on most other Paul McCartney albums, even from the last two decades, there is definitely a higher quotient of those little gems where you're like, these chords are really beautiful. This melody is really beautiful. Lyrics are terrible. Still pretty good. You're really not going to find very much on these two albums. But uh, it's interesting that he positioned himself with Egypt Station with you know trying to dabble and really going for the pop charts again. He got himself a number one album and did a stupid dance challenge and all that. And McCartney 3 got pretty good reviews because people were willing to buy into the lore around the McCartney series title. So... It's good to talk about these albums because he's just always situating, finding ways to situate himself, his albums within his legacy and convince people that he's doing something good when I really think it's just like Emperor's New Clothes shit for the most part. So double delusion for me. It's a fascinating late era career. We could do like a series about about him, I think, and like all the things that it plays into, his, his albums play into. Too bad. It's too bad these weren't better. 
Yeah, I w- really wanted. To I like wanted. That. I wanted to find something good to say about Egypt Station for the haters. All right. Well, good to see you, boys. I'm sorry about all that ugliness earlier with the segments and stuff. It's always a pleasure. We'll get through it. Yeah. Always a learning experience. Yeah. Uh, I hope you learned something today, Sam. Um, Likewise. Uh, what's next? What's our next uh, show? Uh, next week, we'll be talking about the Alice Cooper bands, Hanging with Mr. Cooper. It's the 2008 album where Alice Cooper's anonymous bandmates all get to write and sing a song. Uh, it's an interesting perspective you don't often hear, so I'm looking forward to that. That sounds awesome. Great. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Namaste. Thank you, Grady. Thanks, Grady. Later is hosted and produced by Winston Cook-Wilson, Andy Kush, and Sam Sadomsky. It is edited by Winston Cook-Wilson and mixed and mastered by Ian Wayne. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJP. Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media.